Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Media and Communications. I am your host of the channel, Lee Pierce, I use she, they pronouns, and I'm excited today to welcome a fellow rhetorician onto the podcast. Emma Francis Bloomfield is joining us today to discuss her new book, Communication Strategies for Engaging Climate Skeptics, Religion and the Environment, published by Rutledge. And this is part of their series, Rutledge Advances in Climate Change Research. So this is a really awesome book for a couple of reasons. One, very timely, given all of the um, things happening with the upcoming election, lots of decisions to be made about where we all stand on climate change. Two, I really appreciate that the book is a focus on strategies. In fact, it's the only book I've ever seen from a rhetorician that has a cool executive summary in the back about different ways that you can engage climate change skeptics, uh, specifically in a Christian context. So if you want to take that book, that one page with you and sneak it into a dinner party for your family. You can do that. And then the last part is that even though it is a look mostly at engaging climate skeptics within a Christian context, there's also some discussion of sympathy, right? So how do you capitalize on sympathizers and those aspects of Christianity that actually support progressive climate change legislation and things as opposed to only uh, kind of like refute the deniers. So it's a really robust book. I'm excited to dig in. And I think everyone's going to learn a lot today about a very important issue. So with that, uh, Emma, are you there? And I'll kick it over to you to tell us more about the book and uh, yourself a little bit, if you don't mind. Hi, Lee. I am here. Uh, Yeah, so my name is Emma. I use she, her pronouns. I'm currently an assistant professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and I did my PhD at the University of Southern California. And and this book came out of my dissertation research. Largely, I study science skepticism, science communication, and controversies related to scientific topics. And I'm particularly interested in the intersections between science and religion. As you mentioned, oftentimes oppositional, but sometimes quite overlapping and harmonious. Terrific. So what um, kind of like what was the impetus or the the first spark to work on this book? Yes. So I started working on this project during my graduate work at USC And I was initially interested in comparing evolution skeptics to climate change skeptics. So I was thinking about comparisons and overlaps between people who are religious, who who for a variety of different reasons, either deny science or just skeptical of science. So in working on the dissertation and thinking about moving it to publication, I got in touch with people at Rutledge in the sustainability and environment series there. I do want to shout out to Annabelle Harris, who met with me at a conference and encouraged me to pursue publishing the dissertation, but just on the climate change part. So because it was in the environment and sustainability section of Rutledge, they encouraged me to cut the evolution part and then think about adding to it. And that's when I started doing interviews with climate skeptics and with religious environmentalists and adding those interviews to the more traditional rhetorical analysis of texts from those groups. Well, I appreciate the book because I read recently that, well, it's not a recent policy, but uh, many of the major media outlets, New York Times, et cetera, et cetera, will no longer actually publish op-eds or guest posts about climate change denial or climate change skepticism because the argument 
is that the science is so irrefutable that they're just not going to entertain what basically at this point amounts to fiction. Yet in your book, you say that actually climate change skepticism or climate change denial comprises a fair amount of U.S. public opinion. And so engaging these people is incredibly important. And you also talk about thinking about it from a perspective of how their identity and their faith is wrapped up in their belief system, which, uh, and then you, and this concept of kind of rhetorical listening and engaging as opposed to arguing against or criticizing or putting down or dismissing or any of the other ways that I think people often deal with climate change skeptics. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit more about sort of like your unique approach to what it means to do this work? Yes, I think that's a really great question, especially thinking about a lot of bans or a lot of censorship rules, like you mentioned, where people who portray those different opinions can't publish in certain outlets. And I am in support of those types of policies, simply because giving people a platform in those official circumstances does perpetuate the idea that there is an ongoing conversation about the legitimacy of climate science. But I am also in support of not just dismissing those communities out of hand and that we can also reach out to them, engage them in personal conversations, or at least acknowledge those perspectives uh, when we do talk about climate change. And I think something that really struck me in doing the work for the book is that of the many people that I interviewed, even those people who were professed climate skeptics, still cared about the environment. And they told Hmm. me that they cared about the environment. It was just that they were more concerned about money or their business or Mm. their political ideology or their faith. It wasn't that the environment was not important, but that they were ranking other things as more important. So if we acknowledge people as people and sit down and really listen to why they might identify as a climate skeptic or why they hold the beliefs they do, I think we can find we actually have more common ground than we might instinctively think we do. Another facet of this thread of the conversation is that those people who oftentimes write those op-eds are the very extreme polarized Mm -hmm. types of deniers. And those are not necessarily the people that this book is speaking to. In terms of the title, I specifically use the term climate skeptics as opposed to climate Mm -hmm. deniers, because I'm thinking about people who are skeptical, they have doubts, maybe they're unsure, or maybe they're apathetic, because there are a lot of other things that, you know, people need to be worried about. Um, So I do think about skeptics and not those hardline deniers who will never be convinced, but more the larger percentage of people in the middle of the conversation that we can invite. Yeah, it makes me think of when they release the voting issues polls in anticipation for elections. You you frequently, I mean, certainly the environment is high, but it's not typically top three. The economy, healthcare, those are usually high. So when you think about those rankings and then you think about rankings in the in the population the kind of that you're studying there's actually quite a bit of overlap there so it, it, it the way that you're phrasing it doesn't make these people seem as foreign or different than i think a lot of us who are climate change supporters think that they might be and i think it's quite easy uh, and understandable for people to think of someone as a climate skeptic and make assumptions about them we as people yes. mm-hmm. right make assumptions in order to work our ways through our lives. So I think that's totally understandable. What I'm trying to do in the book is say, can we move past that initial, I believe and support climate change, you don't, so we can actually have productive conversations and move somewhere with that topic. Yeah, absolutely. And so to to kind of get us to the meat of the book, you divide the, the groups or the, well, you divide this sort of Christian group of climate skeptics into, well, actually in the relationship of Christianity and 
and faith and climate. Mm. There, you kind of have three groups, yes. and two of them are the skeptic groups, and one of them is the sympathizer group. And what's interesting, so maybe you can explain your 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 classification system a little bit, and also how it differs from some of the other research that's been done on this topic, namely that you are looking more at identity and beliefs as a rhetorician, uh, whereas other people, I think, kind of following more of a social science model, look at severity of opinion and why maybe your approach add something to the conversation that the other approaches, you know, haven't yet kind of touched on. Yes, there are a lot of typologies out there for thinking about the people's opinions about climate change. And I was very interested in Christian populations. As I said, I've been interested in the relationship between science and religion. And then also thinking about how many people in America are Christian, uh, even though there are the rise of the nuns, as we say, where people are less and less affiliated Christianity is still a very large group uh, in America, and it's a very strong belief or influence in beliefs for many Americans and even our whole political system, right, in this sort of Christian civil religion. So I wanted to dive into this specific group as a group that comes to the environment with a very key sense of who they are, what they believe, and what they follow, because I think the environment is a lot about identity. And when you talk about the environment, the environment is so many things. It's everything. It's interconnected with things like health and the economy. It really drives at the core of who we are. So I wanted to create a typology that I thought best captured those types of features that people bring into conversations with them. So as you mentioned, other typologies or taxonomies that have been developed talk a lot about strength of denial as being discrete categories. So someone who's a very strong denier versus someone who's less strong of a denier. And and for me, it didn't really make sense for those to be discrete categories. It's really more of a continuum on strength. And it also occurred to me that that's something that might change quite often, you know, depending on different information that you hear, different topics, that the, the strength uh, or the passion that you have for your denial might be variable. So I wanted to think about something that was less variable and something that might help us actually create categorizations that could drive strategies or inform strategies. So my categorizations are based on rhetorical resources that Christians use in order to make sense of the environment and how they constitute sense-making narratives. So in other words, how are they conceptualizing the relationship between their faith and the environment, which as a rhetorician, I think is manifesting in their language, primarily through the framework and the metaphors they're using, and then also the arguments that they're making. Yeah. And it makes me think of, I mean, I like this idea because you mentioned in the book, which I, I thought was very astute is that, you know, what people vary in their severity all the time. So you can't, right. people can hold moderate, weak and strong beliefs about the same thing, you know, right. pretty much throughout the day. And even if you look at climate change, uh, not enthusiasts, but whatever the optic of a ske- believer is, whatever the opposite <laughs> of a skeptic is, um, advocates, yeah. I bet they're, I bet they're, uh, their own interest in the topic probably ranges from weak to strong, depending on, you know, what's happening, depending on what's in the news. I mean, right. Like you, you can see how all of this stuff would affect anybody's belief system, not just people who are skeptics. So absolutely. We I all have that conversation when we're about to recycle sure. something, right. Or we're about to purchase something. You have that moment of, I have to make a decision here, right. About what choices I'm making in terms of money versus yeah. being environmentally friendly. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so for the audience, uh, we have this concept in rhetoric that I love, which is this idea of salience. And so we're very contradictory human beings. We have all kinds of different contradictions going on inside of us all the time. It's, it's not bad. It just is what it is. And one of the ways that we make that work is some things are more salient at any given time than at other times. And so part of what rhetoric does is think about how do we make particular issues salient more salient than at other times, like race, for example, is very salient right now. But mm-hmm. um, five years ago, it, it still needed to be salient. and It wasn't. And so, you know, just to kind of reiterate what Emma said, that climate change skeptics are not just like ignorant or willfully stupid people who just have no common sense, right? They just have different sets of priorities and beliefs that are shifting and contradictory, very similar to what a climate change advocate might have. So I think, again, like kind of identifying common ground is going to be crucial to do that kind of engagement work. I think that was an excellent summary of that key point there. It's for me, it's looking at the person behind these beliefs. We may disagree on this topic, but you're still a person and we can still care about each other and we might have things in common that can help us work together. Yeah. And then um, I don't know if you want to talk more about sort of like how Christianity makes or does not make climate change and climate sort of like climate advocacy a priority or salient or if or if it makes more sense to kind of dive into the typology to give people a sense of what are the three different groups and then what are the what's the way that they're the christianity because again they're all dealing with the same christianity and theory but different parts of christianity become their dominant argument strategy and that in turn yields where they fall in your typology which is a cool way of organizing things Absolutely. I can address both of those. So yeah, first, I think that's thinking, interesting. <laughs> first thinking about Christianity as a resource for people, we oftentimes, and polls will support this, associate being Christian with being more conservative and then also being uh, less likely to support environmental policies. So those are all interrelated in terms of polling. And you could think about it as an identity cluster, right? If I'm religious, I support perhaps, you know, I don't support rather progressive, you know, social change. I tend to be more conservative economically. So you're going to be uh, less likely to vote for candidates who support environmental policies, right? So those things are all connected and related. Sorry, Um, real quick. mm -hmm. When you say the polls support that, do do you mean that the polls support that there's a bias to believing these things among just like sort of non-Christian audiences? Or do you mean that the polls support that those tendencies, in fact, are a trend? Yes, the polls, the latter, the polls support that if you are Christian, you're more likely to be conservative and less likely to vote for climate policies. Yes. And there are other polls that suggest not only is it a matter of Christianity being linked to political, politically conservative ideas, but there's also a subset of Christians who believe in the second coming. And they also believe that climate change is potentially a harbinger of that. And thus think of climate change as potentially something positive or something signaling that the second coming is happening. So apocalyptic beliefs are also linked to not supporting uh, climate change policies or environmental policies. Um, Yeah, I actually interviewed, uh, have you read, oh gosh, I'm going to get the name wrong. I think it's Luke Winslow's American Catastrophe. No, I haven't. He's a, I, I should look oh, okay. I did an interview a couple of uh, mm-hmm. weeks ago with him. Very similar argument that this kind of like catastrophic end times that often mm-hmm. go along with climate change and other things tend to often too easily kind of converge with Christian doctrine in ways that make it hard for for fundamentalist Christians, I think that was his target audience, to get on board with this stuff because it seems to vibe already with, with how they think the world is going to go down anyway. 
Absolutely. I agree wholeheartedly with that argument. And I find okay, the same very thing cool. to be and, true oh, and in I, my research. That's research. actually a good question. When you say Christians, did you try to cut across the swath or were you sort of more focused on fundamentalists? I did. T- um, in my recruiting of interviewees, I cut across the swath and, and had people, if they right. wanted to, tell me what denomination that they were in. But I think a lot of our assumptions about Christianity being against uh, climate change is because of those fundamental interpretations. Astute move. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Keep going. After the apocalypse stuff, I would love to hear more about it. Yes. So the alternative to uh, believing in Christianity leading to anti-climate change beliefs is a subsection of Christians who are sometimes referred to as green evangelicals or the creation care movement where people, because they are Christian, actually feel like they are driven to be environmentalists and that being environmentally friendly is part and parcel of a Christian identity. So interestingly for me as a rhetorician, right, you have the same resource, but you interpret it completely differently Mm. as support for quite different perspectives on the environment. Yeah, so the creation care movement is really about marrying one's faith, one's Christian faith with the environment. So thinking about some of the passages in the Bible that really communicate an ecological interconnectedness, right? Adam and Eve are told to be carers of the Garden of Eden and that they should protect and watch over it. Um, Thinking about Mm. passages where uh, sins like greed are bad. So thinking about we shouldn't be Mm. over-consuming right, the environment. And there's a lot of passages like this that the creation care movement will use to say, well, God wanted Christians to be stewards of the environment and not exploit it, and that we should be protecting all life under this pro-life banner, not just, you know, unborn children. So a lot of Mm. Christians will look at certain doctrine that we might connect on first blush with conservative perspectives on the environment and actually see them as quite progressive calls to care for the environment. Oh, interesting. And they are your group that you label as sympathizers, correct? That's right. So if you're thinking about the typology, I think of that first group I was talking about who are Christians who are skeptical of climate change as two types, separators and bargainers. And then the third group in the typology is who I call the harmonizers, who are more of these creation care advocates who, as you say, are, are sympathizers towards, uh, towards climate change. And then how do, I mean, obviously, like, it's pretty clear how they differ from the first two, but how do the bargainers and the separators differ? Yes, the separators are, I primarily categorize them based on how they view the relationship with the environment and their faith. And the separators tend to, as they're named, separate them and see them as mutually exclusive and oppositional forces with one another. So a separator Mm. would likely reject the idea that climate change is happening or that climate science is something that we should be following as opposed to following the Bible. Whereas the bargainers are take more of a moderation approach to climate science and the environment, and they might borrow some aspects of environmentalism and see it as compatible with their faith, but they still reject most climate science and the idea that we need to be taking action on climate change. And where's the evidence from, because I'm not like super up on my Christian doctrine, but where's the evidence for each group? So when each group says, oh, well, the Bible tells me blah, what kinds of things are the separators saying? And then what kinds of things are the bargainers saying? A really great question, an interesting one, because they oftentimes point to the same passages. So that passage I mentioned before about 
Adam and Eve being told to care and tend to the Garden of Eden, in certain translations, it's uh, phrased as having dominion or control over the garden. So that Mm. type of language evokes a type of hierarchy where obviously God is at the top, but then humans are more important than and have power over um, the environment. So those types of passages in the same part, typically in the early Genesis, can be recast by either group to interpret it as either pro-environmental messages or anti-environmental messages. Oh, that's really fascinating. So, so the translations, so the translations add an extra layer beyond just how people marshal the evidence. Yeah, and something interesting as well is the borrowing of the same terms. So the creation care movement will all will say that people should be stewards of the environment. And separator groups, like my exemplar separator group, the Cornwall Alliance, will also call their approach to environmentalism responsible stewardship, but they define it as primarily serving humans more than the earth. So they're prioritizing um, humans in that relationship and that caring for human needs over environmental needs is actually what responsible stewardship means. Huh, interesting. So the Cornwall Alliance is the exemplary group for your separators. And can you tell us more about that group and that uh, that alliance that maybe people aren't familiar with or that you found especially insightful? Yes, the Cornwall Alliance was started in 2005, and it's run by E. Calvin Beisner, and he is the head of that group. And they publish a lot of documents and articles on their website. They make declarations about what they feel is the appropriate relationship about the environment and Christianity. And a lot of people think of them as being started in response to the growing creation care movement. So my exemplar harmonizer group is the Evangelical Environmental Network, which was founded in 93. And once that movement started gaining some ground and gaining some popularity, groups like the Cornwall Alliance started forming And it created sort of a turf war over what was the correct or appropriate interpretation of Christianity and stewardship. Gotcha. Well, that's kind of encouraging that that the that the Evangelical Environmental Network was like a decade ahead of people. And then is there anything else about the Cornwall Alliance or that makes them particularly like why did you pick them as an exemplar? Are there any particular strategies that they use to advocate for their cause beyond sort of what we've chatted about? The separator group, the Cornwall Alliance, is very polarizing. They, as a strategy, try to get Mm -hmm. a lot of media coverage, and they speak very firmly and aggressively towards environmental movements, and especially groups like the Evangelical Environmental Network, which they view as traitors to Christianity. So their discourse Mm. is quite exemplary of the separators in terms of their aggressive rhetoric and their use of this metaphor of war that really does not allow compromise um, in a lot of ways. So that's why I chose them. They're also quite well known um, in these circles. So if you were to search you know, newspaper articles about religion and the environment, they're oftentimes um, featured in those articles, I think perhaps because their discourse is so polarized and, and you know kind of media worthy. Yeah. And I think also funding, right? You have a lot of like fossil fuels um, industries, like Coke funded industries that are funneling money into right wing conservative Christian environmental academics and advocates that are advocating obviously like for things like non-renewable energy, which is good for big business. I think you mentioned it a little bit. And I also, the first thing I looked up was like, where's your money coming from? And I was like, oh, no surprise here. Um, And then, um, 
do you want to talk more about strategies for engaging the separators or do you want to move on and maybe kind of flesh out the typology with the moderators too? Or sorry, not the moderators, the, um, the negotiators. The bargainers. Yeah, so the strategies I, I describe for the separators are really to not put yourself in the position of being the enemy of that war, right? If you're having a conversation with someone oh. and they see things through a war frame, you want to do everything you can not to put yourself on the enemy side because then the conversation's not going to go anywhere. So I encourage if you're engaging with someone who has these polarized views of their faith in the environment to ask questions of them and learn more about their values and offer ways that their views are compatible with environmentalism. So in the book, I talk about a separator that I spoke to. These are all pseudonyms in the book, who I named Charles. And they were talking about, well, it's most important for humans to be safe and to be comfortable. So I don't care, right, mm. about environmental waste or I don't, I don't really prioritize, you know, thinking about the environment. And so I was asking them questions about their beliefs in the second coming. And we basically came to this agreement that, well, if the apocalypse is not happening anytime soon, damaging the damage to the environment will affect humans' ability to be safe and to be comfortable and to have resources. So instead of trying to encourage this person to think environmentally, I tried to link care for the environment as supporting what their priority was, which was caring for humans. So thinking about right, commonality. Right, because you, you they introduce new values. They introduce safety as, and comfort exactly. as the big values. And so you have to link those to, envir- to the environment being taken care of. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. So in I that gotcha. case, I'm not yeah. on the war. Mm-hmm. I'm not the enemy saying, well, human life isn't important or human safety isn't important. I'm saying, yes, it is. And let's see how the environment fits into you know, um, supporting those values. And, and of then course, the, I think one thing, too, that the book sort of focuses on is like throwing climate change science at them doesn't seem to be a good strategy. It's interesting because there is research that says when people do their own scientific research and dig into the data, they will sure. oftentimes convince themselves. But if you are, as you say, throwing climate science at people, that tends to turn them off, right, and, and come off as patronizing or condescending. So that'll shut down conversation very quickly. But if you can encourage people on their own to do more research into the science, that tends to be quite successful. And that was one of my strategies for talking to bargainers, because bargainers do accept some climate science, and they will cherry pick people who they will listen to, uh, who are climate scientists or climate experts. So in one conversation with a bargainer, they wanted me to read an article that was published by the Heartland Institute, which is uh, similar to the mm-hmm. Cornwall Alliance, receives a lot of funding from fossil fuel companies, right, as a conservative nonprofit. And I said to them, I will absolutely read that article. Can I send you one to read? And then we can discuss. Mm. So it was about information exchange and valuing what they wanted to share with me, but then also introducing them to things outside of that echo chamber that you can get caught in very quickly um, if you go on these sites and look up for climate change information. Did you have a chance to talk to any religious leadership in the course of this study about their responsibility or their response to kind of being the person that guides these interpretive frameworks for their parishioners? So I did talk to uh, a few people who were heads of local creation care movements, and that was because of personal connections I had built while doing research for the dissertation. Okay, okay. But most people who I reached out to, I let 
any details they wanted to share about themselves come up organically in the conversation or be fully their choice. So I didn't do any sort of surveying of demographics or get specific denominational information unless they offered it. But I did speak to a few local leaders who thought climate change was extremely important. They did advocacy work primarily through online spaces, like writing blogs and sending newsletters uh, to parishioners and their community, and then just trying to organize community service projects related to the environment. Yeah, interesting, because it seems like with the information exchange and the research and the science, part of what's missing here is sort of like the research on the Bible, which which I'm just curious, because obviously, like for me, the Bible is a text like any other text. But obviously, for other people, it is not something that's up for negotiation, even though quite obviously, <laughs> right, the fact that the same two groups can use the same passage, right, betrays that. But it's again, it's not about like, it's not, pointing out contradictions in situations like this is really helpful. Yes, I am not Christian. So I found out very early on in my conversations that telling people about Bible passages that support the environment was not an argument I was going to win, right? And people see no, themselves yes. Yeah. as the personal expert on their version of their faith. And that's not something that can yes. be shaken mm-hmm. by throwing additional Bible verses at them. Um, and some people would mm-hmm. would get a little bit upset, right? As if I were trying to teach them about their own faith. So my strategy very early on was to not, again, go directly to the science and not go directly to the Bible and think more about those common Ah. values that connect all of these pieces together. And that was also then more authentic and sincere from my perspective, uh, which is something that Krista Ratcliffe talks about in terms of rhetorical listening, is being sincere and authentic. And you can't really do that if I'm trying to pretend I know more about the Bible than, than my dialogue partner is. Yeah, it's incredibly hard to go in without an agenda, but but if you have one, it will people will suss it out. That was really my point in reaching out to people was to say I want to have a conversation with you about the environment, and I really wasn't going into conversations trying to persuade people. My goal was how long can I keep this conversation going? How long can I engage them on this topic? And I think going in without an agenda and without an intent to persuade or convince really helped a lot of these conversations be quite long and, and quite deep. Yeah, the book is very non-judgmental, And I mean, I think that's going to be an asset to people. I think even I mean, I think even a climate change skeptic would find this book sort of fascinating from an argumentation perspective, because it is it is very non-judgmental. I mean, it's clear that the motive of the book is wanting more support right. for environmental policy, but it's not, even though that's its sort of like hope, it isn't, it doesn't render judgment that some people just don't agree. Those people are not like maligned in the book, which, which I think makes it a really attractive read for a lot of different types of groups. And I'm still in touch with some of these people who I interviewed and will exchange oh, messages and exchange resources. So there are some, what I would call- Have they read the book? Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> I did tell people um, who gave me, you know, permission to recontact them when it came out, but I haven't heard any any commentary from them about the book itself. I can understand that. It's it's a busy world. Everybody's got stuff to do. I think part of that is the publishing delay because I was doing these interviews years ago, right before the fi- the book actually got published. So people were probably thinking, "Who is this person True. messaging me?" They might not have even remembered our conversation. <laughs> That's true. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Yeah, the book publishing, especially in academia, is a long process. And then in terms of the bargainer group, 
what kinds of value do you see them having sort of like similar value conflicts that that you tend to use as your levers like comfort and security and safety or do you see them introducing new values into the system that's a really great question the bargainers that i spoke to were very interested in the economy and were very interested in jobs and of course that's related to comfort and safety but they tended to shift the conversation out of science and religion and into the economy. And there was a type of you know, Protestant work ethic in their discussions mm. with me about the importance of work and the importance of business and keeping the economy going, which was linked to their idea that, you know, as Christians, they should they should be working. <laughs> and the their faith that the economy would actually be the best way to support their Christian values. And that's pretty common in terms of some nonprofits or some think tanks that are driven by sort of free market ideals. They share a lot of similarities with the with the bargainers that I spoke with. I think they the bargainers more than the separators because they are bargaining between religion and climate science oftentimes see themselves as more scientific than the scientists. So they will cherry pick certain research and say, see, this supports my idea that we don't have to worry about climate change, and thus we can keep prioritizing the economy over the environment. Yeah, one thing I noticed reading about, reading some of the the examples, and maybe you could give a couple um, from specific interviewees rather than me picking them out for you, is, is rhetorically... There's a lot of bleed between this word environment and this word economy, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Because an economy yeah. is an environment in the sense that they're both like structures of support for human life. And I, I think part of the reason maybe the bargainers are the bargainers is because I think maybe inherently they understand that there's some fuzziness there that even though I think... I think, I think, you know, if you ask them, they would think, no, the environment, I know what that is, that's trees. And then the economy is like shopping. I think they sort of know instinctually that that's a hard line to really keep separate. Yeah, the Acton Institute, which is the exemplar bargainer, has an article about looking at the etymology of economy and environment and seeing them as related to the household or the home. And I think it's a really interesting overlap. Because they see Hmm. the economy, if you work for the economy and you make it strong, that will naturally benefit the environment as well. So they, they see environmental policies as sort of splitting your attention when you could just focus on the environment and, or excuse me, on the economy and then the environment will follow. And then in terms of strategies uh, for engaging that group, it sounds like we've already got one, which is to sort of not try to go too hard on the science right. uh, as like sort of like condescending or, or biblical passages. Any other highlights from this in terms of strategy? Yes. My other two strategies for them are meeting them where they are. So if they care about the economy, don't try to force them to care about something else. Go to the economy and find examples you can share with them about how the economy can benefit by being more environmentally friendly. And it also works to provide them counter examples to what they believe to be true climate science. And what I mean by that is bargainers tend to cherry pick individual climate scientists or individual data or case studies. So if you can provide counter examples and introduce them to information that challenges 
what they believe is true of all climate science, you can start to poke holes in those generalizations that they hold and those correlations that they hold and introduce them to information they might not have read previously. So counterexamples I used um, when talking with a bargainer who was confusing weather and climate. And so they were talking about, oh, I Mm. see snow and I see the temperature still cold in the winter. So climate change isn't real and people are exaggerating. So when providing, I provided specific examples of hot temperature records that have been breaking and that have been broken and comparing different times of year and, and just giving them more examples than the ones they were turning to, which was, of course, understandably their own personal experiences, right? That's where they turned to for understanding. So I gave them other examples of people telling stories about the climate or thinking about how the weather had changed um, over time to just get open up their eyes to different experiences than just their own or what they assume to be true. And, and, and one thing that struck me in this particular chapter is needing more examples for this group of where climate change threatens what they consider to be like economic success. Right. So not just evidence that climate change is happening, but like it has affected the bottom line of X, Y, Z. And unfortunately, there are not a lot of like major corporations coming out and talking about climate change, sort of like you often hear from like kind of smaller green startups about the problem. But um, I remember a couple of years ago, the somebody from the NFL, I don't remember if it was the chairman, but they talked about the insane temperatures that summer and how it was making it really hard for them to have opening practice. And so they were losing a lot of money because they kept, like people were like having like heat stroke and stuff. And a bunch of climate activists came out and said, that's climate change, right? No more NFL. And I remember thinking like, oh, this is a good example to pull out for a bargainer, right? Because it's a ton, that's a huge industry. And it's also, you know, taps into kind of like lots of American pastimes and things like that. And that might be a, so having those examples, um, unfortunately though, they're hard to find because it's so rare that a corporation links those kinds of problems to climate change issues. Yeah, that's a really great example. Uh, other examples we can turn to are things like extreme weather uh, occurrences. Um, mm-hmm. For example, um, interviews that ha- and, and surveys that happened in Hurricane Harvey, people were more likely to believe in climate change after experiencing a hurricane or extreme weather event. So it's something we obviously don't want to happen. We don't want extreme weather events, but pointing to those as examples or others can also be very powerful ways to say, hey, these are these are things that are happening because of climate change. Yeah. And again, I think I think repeat the theme here, right, which is instead of arguing against them with like, you know, kind of just like clashing with your system of values and your system of evidence, kind of like using what they've already given you as a lever to say like, oh, well, you know, I can, I can give you examples that fit the kind of criteria you're looking for instead of me giving you examples that fit the criteria I think you should want. Absolutely. And that's about respecting, for me, that's about respecting that person, listening to that person, and thinking about their contribution as valuable, even if we disagree on climate change's severity and its existence. Yeah, well, I mean, this is kind of one of those situations where it's like, well, you can be right, or you can make a contribution to public dialogue. Right. So what's more important? What's more important? Leaving right? You know, because you're never going to, there's no world in which you just cajole someone with all of your argument into, into just changing their mind. I mean, persuasion just doesn't happen like that. And I think that's a, I think that's a misunderstanding, probably in part because of media, just like the persuasion is this kind of like very aggressive, instantaneous process. And, you know, 
studies and personal experience, I think, show over and over and over again that attitude change comes from, you know, find, like exactly what you said, finding common ground, thinking mm-hmm. in terms of someone else's values, making it a long game instead of a short game and, you know, conceding so that you can get sort of like exactly like what you said, like it's more of a win for someone to go look up the evidence on their own than it is for you to just tell them why you're, they're wrong and then have them just walk away and never talk to you again. Exactly. And I, I get that question quite a bit from, from people when I've done talks or when people have reached out to me about the book about why give them space? Why give climate skeptics? Yep, I, I'm not surprised. Why give them yeah. attention? And for me, I'm just not willing to let a good portion of the population go. I'm not willing to just say, that's okay what they believe. They don't have to care about the environment. I want to say, no, how can we find common ground so the environment can be something that everyone cares about? And it becomes that number one priority, you know, when we go into elections. It's also like our president is a climate change skeptic. Right. <laughs> They're not a fringe group, right? I mean, they no, very exactly. fundamentally affect policy and make decisions. So, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I appreciated the thrust of the book. I understand that there are people who think there's no room for middle ground, but yeah. in some cases, perhaps not. But I certainly think this is one where you're better off served with the engaging concept than the winner take all kind of approach, which is ironic given that that's one of the main strategies of the, right? So it's like, that's right. do you really mm-hmm. want to be a climate change advocate using the same strategy of war that is being used by the climate change? And I do have a passage in the book about that one separator who was quite aggressive towards me and I couldn't get to engage in dialogue. Uh, but that was really the exception to the rule. Most people were really open about having conversations and even thanked me for asking mm-hmm. their opinion about it. Well, I mean, and I think too, as a college professor, you sort of see this happen in ways that maybe other people don't, because if if, if a student shows up in your classroom and they right. don't agree with you, you cannot, I mean, you have to teach them. You cannot just right. ignore them and fail them and kick them out because you don't like what they have to say. And so I think it just becomes a lot easier to think of all of these conversations as, well, they need to be taught. And maybe I need to be taught too, right? Because I'm certainly not always right. I might be right about climate change, but I might not be right about what values that treads on or how people need to hear the information to understand it. That's exactly right. And I even learned things about the values that people held and how they were prioritizing uh, those different values. So yeah, I thought it was very informative for me having all these conversations. Yeah, and that's great. I mean, I think that that's a really, really amazing attitude to have. Well, so we've covered, I think, all the highlights. Uh, we could go back to, we haven't really talked about strategies. It's a, Again, that third chapter is sort of an interesting one because it's more about people who are already sympathetic to the cause, but, but also share those Christian values. Do you want to say anything else about their strategies or strategies for engaging those people or maybe lessons that you learned from that group that could be applied to this conversation as a whole? I think one of the most interesting things about the harmonizers was that they were very aware of skepticism within the Christian community, and that caused a lot of them to be afraid to come out, as it were, and some of them used that language. So if we can can connect some of these ideas between Christianity and, and the environment more publicly, that might encourage more Christians to be more open about their environmental beliefs. And if you start seeing more environmentalists in Christian communities, that's going to chain out and more people are going to be willing to come forward and more people are going to be introduced right to those concepts as not antithetical to their faith, but actually in alignment uh, mm-hmm. with their faith. So that was something I didn't know was that they were, a lot of people were very hesitant to talk about the environment with their family and they kept their advocacy quite personal and private. 
um, and just thought about, well, I'm going to be a good Christian and, and that's enough. So part of that chapter was saying, well, how can you expand that um, and introduce more people into your environmental worldview just to encourage more of that um, sharing within the Christian community? Yeah. And one thing I thought about, too, when I was reading about the harmonizers on this point is that it also doesn't help then when people kind of dismiss Christians and climate change skeptics together because it compounds this not wanting. I mean, they're harmonizers, right? That's that they that's why they're in that group. So the the other part of that is that they 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 want harmony, meaning they're not going to jump up and be the first to tell you you're wrong. They're just going to kind of quietly realize, oh, this is a stereotype everybody has. What's the point? Yes. And that was part of what I wanted to do in this book was break down the idea that climate skeptic and Christian are monolithic categories and homogenous, and they all think the same way and really think about the nuances um, within those categories that could help us find inroads, right, to productive cooperation and conversation. Yeah, well, and I think, and again, I mean, people need shortcuts. So it's very hard to like, sometimes know exactly what group you're talking about. So if you need a generalizable, what I think is helpful in this book is you now have these organizations like the Cornwall Alliance, and you can talk about them instead of Christians and their climate change denial. You can talk, they can be, they can be your metaphor. Just like if, I don't know, if you want to talk about misogynists, don't call them Trump supporters, because, you know, if your goal is to engage with the opposition, because then you risk alienating feminist Trump support, right? You see what I mean? So so the book is helpful in the sense you now have like these exemplary groups and people can direct their energy at those shorthands instead of the Christians or whatever, which is more destructive. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I really, like I said, I mean, I think this book is uniquely practical, which I, it's, it's, which is a compliment and it's certainly not, it's very theoretically dense, but it's, it also has this added layer of what do you do with this that I think a lot of books, especially written in our field, kind of leave people feeling like they don't have. And so I appreciated that. Do you want to um, wrap up with anything that we haven't had a chance to cover on or maybe new projects you're working with or anything like that? I think on that last point, I was really inspired by work by Leah Ceccarelli. And when she talks about manufactured controversies, the end of that piece Mm. gives advice for what to do about Mm -hmm. it. And I found that very empowering. So I think a lot of work in rhetoric, and I'm guilty of this too, is just, this is bad. This is bad. Look at this. Look at this. And it's like, okay, where do we go from here? So I really wanted to add that summary in the back that takes all of my talking points and strategies that people can refer to to say, okay, where do I go if I find myself in this um, this situation? And I do encourage people to reach out to me if they want a copy of just that executive summary chapter, if they can email me at emma.bloomfield at unlv.edu, oh, nice. and I will send it to them, just that chapter if they want it, um, because it really summarizes all of those key practical uh, contributions that the book makes. Great. And I will, um, no one's going to remember that email and 50% of people are driving right now. So I will, <laughs> I will uh, put your email in the show notes. So if anybody just wants to open the show notes on the web or on the app where you're listening, you can just click on Emma's email and it will, um, you can shoot her a message right from your phone. So I will include that. Yeah. Leah Tacarelli's great. She's, um, she's an OG rhetoric of science person in our That's field right. <laughs> who I don't think has a new, has a new book, but I'm hoping maybe new books network cuts me off at 2015. So not allowed to interview anything older than that as much as I wish I could. Well, with that said, uh, it's just a fascinating book. I really enjoyed it. It's a great read and the depth of interviews too. We didn't really talk much about methodology, but the quality of and quantity of different types of, because you're looking at media coverage, you're looking at 
source material from these organizations. You're looking at interviews, participant data, survey data, conversations, emails. I mean, it's really, really dense. Well, thank you. I'm glad that you liked it. And I hope that people find some use out of it um, and enjoy it as well. Yeah. Speaking of enjoying it, you, listener, can enjoy your very own copy. Once again, um, just just in case you kind of tuned out or missed the very beginning of the interview, which you know sometimes happens, we have been speaking with Emma Francis Bloomfield. And Emma, do you want to tell them more about where they can get the book? And I assume that the, the e-copy is just as good as the hard copy. It, it contains the executive summary and everything. That's right. Yes. So you can purchase it from Rutledge's website or Amazon. The hardcover is quite expensive just to match the pricing of the books in already in the series, but the ebook is much mm-hmm. cheaper. It has all the same content with the executive summaries chapter. And you can also always request that your local library orders a copy. Yes. And we would love to thank Rutledge. They are one of the presses um, that help keep the New Books Network afloat. They also do a unique job of making sure that research like this really gets its due in terms of publication. Um, Some presses rush this stuff through, but Rutledge is is a favorite standard of ours. And the name of the book, again, is Communication Strategies for Engaging Climate Skeptics, Religion, and the Environment. And as Emma said, local libraries, you know, they are the place. And so I always recommend that you either pick up a copy of the book, give it a a gentle read without folding the corners, and then donate it to the library when you're done so that other people can get a chance to enjoy the book, Uh, whether that's a public library, which really needs your help right now, or your university library if you're on a college campus. Or you can actually go in and request that one of those places buy the book. You can kind of give a nudge that this might be a book they want to keep on the shelves. It's tough right now with budget, so I generally recommend that that not be your direct route, but certainly right, for right. anyone who really loves the book, there's often also um, e-loans and uh, direct uh, library to library lending. So definitely, however you can do it, get a copy. But if you can put one into circulation for everyone to enjoy, it's a nice way to pay back the work that um, scholars like Emma do for people who maybe cannot afford or don't know about these kinds of books until they see them on a public library shelf. And with that little spiel in support of public libraries, which I just love me a library, um, do you want to say anything else, Emma, or tell us about what you're working on now before we wrap My current project I'm working on is going back to comparative work between scientific controversies. So I'm looking mm-hmm. again at evolution, climate change, and also rising vaccine skepticism. Uh, So that's my current project is thinking about overlaps uh, between those groups, not just in terms of religion, but a variety of different reasons why people are skeptical of science. Yeah, you should really read that Luke Winslow American Catastrophe. I will do that. (laughs) And if if no one has listened to the interview on American Catastrophe, it came out a couple of weeks ago and you can check that out right after you finish up with my interview with Emma. All right. Well, Emma, this has been an awesome convo. Thank you so much for the book. I can tell how much work you put into it and it definitely paid off on, on the end of the reader and for joining us on New Books Network in the channel and media and communications. Thank you, Lee.